that comes out of the study of John 6 is how different our Lord's approach to discipleship is in comparison to what is typically practiced today, whereas preachers are typically eager to secure a person's initial decision, Jesus doesn't entrust himself to those of superficial faith, whereas preachers are prone to make the gospel more palatable, Jesus unapologetically confronts people with the offense of his message. Whereas preachers often seek to lower and diminish the terms of discipleship, Jesus does the very opposite and exposes the difficulty of following him in order to weed out those who have not and aren't willing to follow him. And nowhere really is this better seen, as I've said, than in John 6. You see, so much ministry today is geared toward drawing a crowd, getting people in the door, attracting them by any means necessary, and making them feel safe and comfortable. And the hope is that over time, they'll actually come to Christ. That if we keep them around long enough, they'll, at some point in time, commit themselves to following Jesus. The problem is, they never actually receive what it is to follow him. They're never actually confronted with what it means to follow Christ. And that's because once you get them in the door, you have to keep them in the door. And in the meantime, others are joining themselves to the crowd, and you have to keep it safe and comfortable for them. And so a person never hears the pure, unadulterated gospel of Jesus Christ and is never actually confronted with what it means to follow him. With the result that you have churches that look no different than the crowd here in John 6. Who have embraced Jesus on their own terms, have embraced him superficially and yet share nothing in his saving work, have, have no share in what Jesus accomplished on the cross. And so we see here in this chapter that Jesus isn't concerned or interested in a crowd. That he doesn't soften the message that no one comes to Christ through the side door. And so he unashamedly declares himself as the truly good shepherd. And I want to give you a fuller summary of what we see at this point in John 6. Just as we come to the end of the, the chapter, we'll be in verses 69 to 71 this morning. But I want to give you a, a fuller summary of what we've seen to this point. In this chapter, a large, a large crowd is pursuing Jesus and pursues him to the northeastern shore of the Sea of Galilee, which is the opposite side of Capernaum, where Jesus had his, his central hub of his Galilean ministry. And with the Passover being near, along with all of the signs and wonders Jesus was performing, there was great anticipation in the air. And this anticipation reached a feverish pitch when Jesus fed them with food made from his bare hands. The feeding of the 5,000, which with women and children was likely as many as 20 or 25,000. And so on the heels of this miracle, what might be the miracle of all miracles,
want to take him by force and make him king, and likely want to bring him to Jerusalem for the Passover to overthrow Rome. And with Jesus, we have none of it. He isn't that kind of king, and it isn't that kind of kingdom. And so he sends the twelve away to, to, to sail back to Capernaum, because they're not swept up in the hysteria of all of this kingdom talk, and he disperses the crowd. That evening, Jesus withdraws to the mountain alone to pray. And later that night, he easterly joined his disciples and comes out to them on the sea, walking on water. And he gets into the boat, and though the boat was only halfway, and though the sea at that point in time was not calm, but rather a wind had stirred it up, the sea is calmed, and Jesus gets into the boat, and the boat is immediately filled. And so now the next day, when the crowd is back, and they're back, it says they ate of the loaves and were filled, and so Jesus launches into a discourse, the very discourse he's been studying, that's aimed at confronting them with who he actually is. And at the outset, he exposes the futility of their, their pursuit. They're after food, food which perishes, food that goes into the body and is eliminated, food that only temporarily sustains physical life. But what they really need is eternal life, everlasting life. Otherwise, they're going to die in their sins. And so Jesus picks up on their pursuit of food and references food that endures to eternal life. Food that he's the source of, food that he says he will give to them. And naturally, this intrigues the crowd. And so, in effect, they say, well, how do we get this food? And Jesus says, by believing in him whom the Father has sent. And so, at this point in the discourse, Jesus has food that endures to eternal life, and he gives that food to those who believe in him. But if the crowd is going to believe in him, they want to find something akin to the manna their fathers ate in the wilderness, bread that had come down from heaven, and so they want Jesus to authenticate himself, to prove that he's worthy of being believed in, at which point the discourse progresses, because Jesus declares that he is the bread of life, and that he who believes in him will never hunger or thirst, which means he's no longer declaring that he has food to give, he's now declaring that he himself is that food. That he himself has come down out of heaven, that he is from above, and, and even tells them in the face of their unbelief that all that the Father gives him will come to him, and all that come to him he will raise up in the last day. And now the crowd that was initially stricken with the Lord isn't. In fact, they're grumbling about him. They reject the notion that he has come down out of heaven, to which Jesus replies that no one can come to him unless the Father who sent him draws them. That all who are taught of God will inevitably come to him. That the Father can only be known in and through the Son. And if that weren't offensive enough, Jesus just increases the offense all the more, declaring that he is the bread of heaven and that he who eats him will live forever even saying that he would give his flesh for the life of the world. And so initially he has food to give, and then he is that food, and then he must
must die so that he may be eaten. And of course, he referring to his sacrificial death where he would atone for the sins of all who would ever believe on his name and whereby eating of him is laying hold of him by faith and receiving the forgiveness of one's sins. All of this, this was too much for the pride of David. But his grumbling among himself, even this very Initiative or lack thereof is at play. It's the 
divine side of the equation that ultimately determines where a person falls on the side of faith or rejection. And so we're just going to see in these verses what we've been seeing be reiterated all over again. The words of John chapter 1, 12 and 13, that those who are given the right to become children of God are those who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. It is God who imparts life. So if you're taking notes, jot down first the pathology of unbelief. The pathology of unbelief. We're going to see it in verses 16 to 24. So let's look at verse 16. It says, Therefore many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? And that this statement was difficult. It's not that it was hard to understand. It was just difficult to accept. The word rendered difficult indicates the message caused an adverse effect. They found it harsh and unpleasant, even crude and offensive. It was bitter to human sensibilities that Jesus is from above, that he has come down out of heaven, that he is the bread of life. But the bread he will give to the life of the world is his flesh. The whole thing is intensely abrasive. And that John refers to this group as his disciples, meaning they had been following him. They were part of the, the larger group of, of individuals that had surrounded Jesus and were, were following him, claiming to be disciples of him. And here Jesus is exposing this superficiality of their faith. They were following Jesus, they were following him on their own terms. So this is one Jesus conscious of his disciples grumble at him from within the group. It's like he's stumbling on them. This is being brought to a downfall, to fall away. They were unable to accept the things that Jesus had said to them. And that's their own language. The question back in verse 16, who can listen to it, is literally, who is able to hear it? They recognize that the ability to hear this message is beyond them. And the, the sense of hear is the sense of obey or, or heed. So it's who is able to heed this? Jesus has brought this group of professing disciples to an infinite chasm that can only be bridged by faith, and they recognize they have no ability to believe in that message. They are unable to accept the things that Jesus has said. It is just too crude, too unsophisticated, too outrageous, and totally ridiculous under the microscope of human appraisal. to say that if they did, then they'd know his claims are true. If he did, if, if, they, if they saw him ascend, and he will, if they were to witness that ascension, then they would know that his claims are in fact true, that he was with the Father before the world was, that he and only he has seen the Father, and that everything he claimed concerning himself as the bread of life is true. He is who he says he is, and so Jesus is saying, I am going to ascend back to heaven. And when you witness that, or if you were to witness that, what then would you say? 
and they don't have life because the Spirit hasn't given them life, and therefore, they cannot accept the things that Jesus does. They had never gained anything to begin with. They were as spiritually dead in their decision. 
relationship as they were prior to it. They had not been drawn by the Father. They had not heard the voice of the shepherd and the son, and they had not been given life by the Spirit. Their faith was superficial, inauthentic, counterfeit. They were self-deceived, following Jesus for all the wrong reasons, following Jesus for purely worldly, selfish reasons. They never lost anything. They didn't have anything to begin with. All they had was a profession that we follow Jesus. And as soon as Jesus brought about the fuller exposure of who he is and confronted them with the reality of that, they're like, well, that's too much. We're going back to the Pharisees or the Sadducees, whoever else you want to believe on, the Pharisees. That is just too much. We have crossed the line. And they fit the characterization of 1 John 2.19. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. If they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. It was to show and expose that they weren't true disciples. That they had never believed in Christ. They had never received life. And so their hostility to Jesus even in the midst of their discipleship, was just as hostile to Pharisees. It just hadn't been revealed yet. It hadn't come out yet because the truth had not triggered it in their hearts yet. And as Jesus continues to reveal who he is, this is from the core to the hostility who are holding on to Jesus, but in the end are going to walk away by this fuller disclosure of who he is. And we'll see if we can answer that in verses 67 to 71. For now, though, we just saw the pathology of unbelief. And by that we mean its cause. And its cause is what? A lack of life. They had no life in themselves. They had no ability, no capacity to believe on Christ, to to hear him. And for a second, if we take a note, jot this down, the pathology of saving faith. We saw the pathology of unbelief, now let's look at the pathology of saving faith. Verse 67, so Jesus said to the twelve, you do not want to go away also, do you? That's a hard question to answer. The way the Lord has phrased that, it appears that both their will and desire. You are not willing to go away also, are you? You are not wanting to go away also, are you? It appeals to both will and desire. And we know he's going to speak up for the disciples. And oftentimes when he does, he speaks up in a way that results in them having to put his foot to his mouth. But here he speaks up in a way that is one of those moments where he knocks it out of the park. Look at verse 68. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. What a contrast in responses. Those who had just walked away from Jesus heard the same words and said, that's a difficult statement. Who is able to heed it? And, G- and then here Peter says, you have words of eternal life. And he's speaking on behalf of the twelve at this point in time. He is declaring, you have words of eternal life. And so where else were they going to go? 
return to a life of pursuing pleasure or wealth or whatever otherworldly ambition could be realized. They had found words of eternal life, or words of eternal life had found them. And that they identified them this way can only mean one thing. They had received everlasting life. If Jesus' words are spirit and are life, and here Peter is saying, you have words of eternal life, and that he recognizes his words are eternal words, words of life, and they must have received life to be able to hear and embrace and believe the things Jesus had said to them. And therefore, verse 59 says, you have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. The Father gave them, the Son called them, the Spirit imparted life to them as a result that they came to Christ by faith. And it reached a settled conviction because the way Peter expresses this is intended to create emphasis. We have believed and have come to know two ways of saying the same thing. Peter is emphatic in this confession of faith. And that Peter confesses Christ as the Holy One of God here is kind of unique. The only time Jesus is called the Holy One of God is by demons. The demons refer to him as the Holy One of God. And you might be, well, that's a bit problematic. How is Peter here claiming the same thing as demons? But the demons know who Jesus is. So when Peter here says, you are the Holy One of God, it's because Peter knows who Jesus is. No problem at all. He recognizes that Jesus is the Holy One of God. And there's messianic overtones in this declaration because in Psalm 16.10, David writes, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay, which is a reference to the resurrection of Christ. And Peter makes that connection in his sermon in Acts 2. Peter recognizes that he's the Holy One of God, the Messiah. And so this is quite a confession. Akin to Peter's confession in Matthew 16.16 when he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. and blood did not reveal the things that the Father will reveal. Peter made a confession, but the precursor, the cause of the confession is the revealing work of the Father. It is the Father who had revealed to Peter the true identity of Christ. And Jesus says the very same thing here in verse 70. Jesus says again, did I myself not choose you, the twelve? I mean, so that Peter doesn't get the wrong idea and think that this confession is the result of his own human ingenuity or intelligence or intellect, his spiritual perceptivity, Jesus makes it very clear that the order of things is that he has chosen them. And so this confession was not the result of their own spiritual perception, it was the result of sovereign election. Now you know Judas, the son of Matthias, 
in John 17 and verse 11 and 12 is still in there. And this is all just to repeat the will. Judas is desperately with Martha for the foundation of the world. And what he did ultimately fulfilled what was said in the Old Testament concerning him. This is John 17 verse 11. I am no longer in the world and yet even twelve are in the world. And I come to you in the Father. Keep them in your name. The name which you have given me. That they may be one even as we are. Verse 12. While I was with them I was keeping them in your name which you have given me. And I guarded them and not one of them perished.
your salvation and, and take an honest assessment and evaluation of your life to be able to see if these realities are there. Because if they're not, then, then you are guilty people because you said so. You haven't come to life. You haven't been changed. You haven't received the forgiveness of sins. You don't have the Spirit. You aren't born from above. I'm in Christ, or I know I'm in Christ, but my focus is not on what it ought to be, and you realize that in this moment, though I am in Christ, and I, I do have life, but as I search my heart right now in this moment, I need to, to, to focus more fully on the, the, the life that I've been called to, I need to be more devoted to God, I need to get back in this race and run this race with endurance. And if that's you, then let this moment be that moment to get back in the race. And that's the means that God uses to help the believers persevere, that when we get a little off track, the Word of God comes to us and calls us and beckons us to, to get back in the race and to run this race that's set before us. The Spirit would also use this moment to enable you to stop and be overwhelmed. And if that's where you are, his son to come into the world and has ultimately ordained that he would be born of a virgin and take upon himself human flesh and live a life under the law whereby he would be expected and required to fulfill the law of God at every point that he did. He did and he did as one who was tempted in all ways as, as we are and yet was without sin. He fulfilled the law in all its demands. Perfect righteousness in his life. He took that righteousness with him all the way to the cross. And on that cross, he was nailed and, and there suffered under the, the righteous indignation of God for the sins of all who would ever believe on his name. And he swallowed up that wrath, and he died, giving up his last breath. He went into the grave. He rose on the third day, and now he is seated in heaven, and the gates of heaven are wide open for you. And if you would believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, then you will be saved.